0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentreeChurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for leading us in, in prayer this morning and for uh, the opportunity to preach. Um, it is not something that I take lightly or, or any of us here at Bent Tree take lightly. Um but my name is, is Wade Williams, for those of you who don't know me, and I am uh, one of the shepherding elders here at Ventry Church, uh, and so it is a pleasure to get to teach God's Word this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Pastor Paul read our sermon text for for the day earlier from Matthew chapter 8. The text that we will be uh, looking at primarily is chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, and when, when I was asked to come and, and preach today, there's a lot going on with the conference, and so our pastoral staff need a little bit of break, so you, know, you call in the C-team uh, to come and, and preach, uh, and when I got ready to do it, I was kind of thinking about, you know, Paul just really kind of opened up the book and said, hey, whatever you want to teach from, you know, go for it, and and those of you who go to Bentry know that we're going through a, a series in the Gospel of John, and a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Paul was teaching from the Gospel of John where Jesus comes walking across the sea in the middle of a storm, and gets into the boat with the disciples, and and when he was talking about that, he made reference to uh, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus calms the storm, and ever since he made reference to that, that whole story of Mark chapter 4 has just been stuck on my mind, and so that was the text that I wanted to preach today. And this text actually appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. So those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, because they're the same, they have a a lot of overlapping content. And so this passage actually appears in Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. And each of the Gospels have a, a different lens that they're trying to help us see Jesus through. And so I chose to preach this today from Matthew rather than Mark's gospel, primarily because of the lens through which Matthew is teaching, what it is that Matthew wants us to understand his purpose in including this story in his gospel, and what it is that he wants us to take away from it. So we'll do a deep dive a little later to talk about some of the context, but in general, the focus of Matthew's gospel is Jesus as king, the king of the Jews. Mark focuses more on Jesus as a servant. Luke really focuses on Jesus' humanity. He's a man. And then you have John, who's like the Fox News of all of the reporters, right? Uh, And John, a lot of original content not included in the other three Gospels, but John is focusing primarily on Jesus' divinity. And I just want to say at the outset that I... I feel like if I was gonna give you all of the like tags in this and give you all of the the credit for like, oh, this guy said this and I heard this from this guy, my sermon would double in length because the truth of the matter is that I have actually heard a lot of great Bible teaching uh, on this passage in particular. And so I think of guys like Tim Keller and J.D. Shaw, who who have, I've heard teach this passage before. Uh, I think of all the commentaries that I read, and even I'm going to read from a children's Bible a little bit today. There is a lot of really great Bible teaching that I have heard here. So there's not going to be a ton of original content in this message today, but uh, more of me passing on to you some really great teaching that I have heard on this passage. So let's begin by looking at our text So we'll go to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 23 to 25 to begin our time. It says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And so the story begins in a place that is, we all have at least some familiarity with. But on the Sea of Galilee, where this takes place, you notice there's one word in there that stands out to me, and that word is suddenly that this storm comes up out of nowhere. And if you know much about the Sea of Galilee, this is a very common occurrence. In fact, as I was reading, uh, one commentator in talking about this particular area and talking about what happens on the Sea of Galilee said this. He said, it isn't only boats that are in danger on the Sea of Galilee. To this day, the car parks on the Western Shore have signs warning drivers of what happens in high winds. The seas can get very rough very quickly, and big waves can swamp cars parked on what looked like a safe beach. So these sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee are not uncommon, but Jesus is with his disciples, and if you know much about his disciples, they are actually professional fishermen, And so the fact that these men who spend a lot of time on the Sea of Galilee immediately become alarmed and worried and come to wake Jesus tells us that this was no ordinary storm on the Sea of Galilee. And we can all relate with this story because we all have our own kind of terrifying experiences with water. As I was getting ready to to preach this, I was thinking back to uh, 2005 I grew up in in South Central Mississippi, not too far from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and it was the early fall of 2005, my freshman year of college, when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I remember the floods and floods of people from the Mississippi Gulf Coast and from the city of New Orleans driving up the interstate in my hometown. It was an interstate and a uh, a state highway that came through, and all lanes were headed north. They came in, shut everything down, Everybody was headed north, getting away. And the danger in a hurricane is typically in the the front right quadrant because that is where the winds are the strongest. But even more than that, the thing that is most dangerous in a hurricane is the storm surge, the rising waters that just come in and level buildings and take out everything in their path. And in 2013... Even though I consider this place a desert wasteland, having grown up in Mississippi, you guys experienced a flood in Colorado. I mean, remember uh, many of you remember that summer um, where a lot of northern Colorado was literally cut in half. I was talking to Pastor Jeff, and he talked about uh, a trip that would normally take him 15 to 20 minutes all of a sudden took him an hour because you had to go around and change directions, and everything was thrown off. And so ironically enough, it was in that same summer, 2013, that one of my college roommates uh came to me just one day out of the blue and he started talking to me. He was like, Wade, dude, like let's go to the movies tonight. You know, back when people still went to the movie theater, you know, he didn't just like stream everything. Um and I was like, Why? Like, what's going on? And and Matthew was super excited and he was like, listen, he's like, this is the movie that you wanna see in the big screen. He's like, there's these giant aliens that come in and fight these robots uh, out in the ocean. And some of you may know, I'm talking about the movie Pacific Rim, okay? That movie came out in 2013. I went to the to movie theater and watched it with my roommate, Matthew, and it was a great time, right? Because it was literally just like huge, giant um, monsters coming out of the ocean and robots that were fighting them to protect humanity on all of the coastlines. It was just a, a great cinematic experience. But when the movie started... I'll never forget the opening line, and if you watch the trailer, it's even the opening line to the trailer, because it was, it was something that was on my mind at the time, and I was like, man, that is really interesting. This is a throwback more than anything else. Yeah, there are robots that are going to fight monsters, but this is really a throwback when it comes to beliefs. This is the opening line of the movie. We always thought alien life would come from the stars, but it came from deep beneath the Pacific, and so these monsters come up out of the ocean. And I just remember watching this and thinking to myself, this is a throwback to ancient belief. They're, they're playing on ancient belief and bringing in some new things with it because ancient, in the ancient world, the sea was the thing that was feared. It was the source of the great unknown. And if you think back to even you know, early sailors having a little bit of fear that they might just sail right off the edge of the earth. Or if you think about a Viking warship going out, and what's on the front? A great sea monster is carved into the front of the ship so that they, you know, it might scare off any other monsters that they're gonna encounter. And so in the ancient world, the sea and water is a source of fear, unknown. And at times, like what we're looking at right now, chaos. And in this passage, we kind of see and feel biblical imagery All over the place. If you look back at the text, you see at the very end of verse 24, we read these words, but Jesus was sleeping. And Jesus being asleep may, in in some people's minds, connect you to another biblical story where there was a great storm on the sea and there was a man who was on the boat but was asleep. And that's Jonah. It harkens back to, to things like Jonah. We think of Noah in the ark and the way that water played a huge role there. We think of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea and then the sea collapsing on the Egyptians and drowning them. We even think of creation where the worth, the world was without form and void and the spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And all of these things draw our mind to this biblical imagery And so if you're taking notes today on the Bible app, one of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that many times water in Scripture is used as an agent of God's wrath. Again, think of Noah and the ark, his family rescued, everyone else drowned. The children of Israel crossing the Red Sea, the Egyptians drowning in the sea. And so we're covered with biblical imagery And so it is no wonder that with all of these things on their minds, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, save us. So with the fear in their hearts, they come to Jesus and they ask to be saved. And what does he do? Look at verse 26. He replies, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Still's the chaos, the unknown, the fear of the sea, dead in an instant, calmed before Jesus. And this is where we're going to take a minute because context is king. And I, I told you that I, I specifically picked the Gospel of Matthew because of the way that Matthew sets this up and the point that Matthew is seeking to make in his gospel. And so we're going to take a minute right now just to talk about context and talk about the the gospel of Matthew as a whole to help us understand what it is that Matthew wants us to take away from this. Because there is a danger, especially in the modern church, to look at a story like this and think that the point is that if we have Jesus in the boat with us, our whole life is going to be fine. And he'll calm all of our storms and we won't have any problems, okay? And that would be a misapplication of the text. So I'm going to make an argument for why I think that is not the point of the text. And it has to do with the structure of Matthew's gospel. So most theologians and biblical scholars actually break Matthew into seven parts, okay? There's an introduction and then there's a close, So, introduction, close. And then within the Gospel of Matthew, there are five primary discourses, monologues, sermons, whatever you want to call them, that Jesus gives. And every time Jesus gives one of these monologues or one of these sermons, he then goes out shortly after and does what he just talked about. Okay? So, he says something. And then he actually goes out and does it. And so if you look and think about, you know, chapters five through seven, where Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous discourses, and that one focuses on the law, then In chapter 10, Jesus sends people out to go and share the good news. And so chapter 10 focuses on mission. And then you see Jesus coming and fulfilling some of those things. In chapter 13, you have the parables of Jesus. And in chapter 13, those parables focus on the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 17 and 18, you get a lot of instruction for community. And then... In chapters 23 to 25, you have what is called the eschatological discourse, or the discourse about the end of times. And if you've been at Bent Tree for a while, uh, you've heard Pastor Jeff, as he's been preaching, he's actually been, at the end of Matthew's gospel, going through that discourse that Jesus gives about the end of the age. And every time Matthew kind of wraps up one of these sections for, for what Jesus is doing, he closes with a statement that, that kind of serves as a bookend, okay? So if you look at, um, for example, Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 28, it says this, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Then, after uh, the the discourse on mission in chapter 11 of Matthew, so discourse is in chapter 10, and then you notice that this is chapter 11, verse 1, so Matthew picks right up there and says, When Jesus had finished, notice the pattern. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went. Then Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. So this is the end of chapter 13 where he's giving the parables about the kingdom. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. So 17 and 18 are the, the discourse on community. Then 19.1, very next verse, very next chapter, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus is finished with the eschatological discourse and 25, immediately chapter 26 starts with verse 1 that says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he goes on to teach his disciples privately. And so I, I point out the structure of Matthew because it's, it's helpful for us. I think it's instructive to us. And what we're looking at in chapter 8 is coming on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount and the close to the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew is then setting up. Here's what happened shortly after that. And so it's, it's helpful for us to go back and look at exactly how Matthew chapter 7 closes because that leads us into Matthew chapter 8. So look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So when we find out, Then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks differently than anyone has ever spoken before. The crowds leave saying to themselves, this man doesn't teach like everybody else. This man teaches as though he has authority. So what does Jesus do? In chapter 8, how does Matthew help us see and understand who Jesus is? We roll right into chapter 8, and the question on our minds should be, how much authority? How do we know that he has authority? What does he do at the beginning of chapter 8? He cleanses a leopard, a leper. Leopards are fine. They have spots, but those spots are good. They're (laughs) camouflage. He cleanses a leper, and then he actually heals a child from afar, From a distance, he cast out demons and he calms the sea. All of these things Matthew puts before us as evidence, as a show of Jesus' authority. And so the sea obeys Jesus whenever he commands it. And so the question on our minds should be, why? Why is it that the winds and the waves obey him? And this is where sometimes the simplicity of a children's Bible can be very instructive. And so I'm gonna to read today from the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones and the way that she talks about this um, in, in her story on Jesus calming the so- storm. The winds and the waves obey him, but why? Why is the question? This is what she says. The wind and the waves Recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus and did what he said. And so Matthew puts in front of us this reality that the one who John chapter one and Colossians one says that by him and for him and through him and to him are all things and through him all things were created and there's not anything that has been made apart from Jesus says that, hey, listen, the reason that the water did this, the reason that the wind obeyed Jesus is because that same voice that spoke them into existence in the, minute, in the beginning told them, hush, be still, and they did it. Because he has authority. It is the authority of Christ that is on display. And I wanna speak for just a moment to maybe the unbeliever or the skeptic who is here today. If you're with us today and you don't really, you're kind of like, ah, I don't really know. This, this whole Bible thing, it sounds like hocus pocus and, uh, you know, I'm not a Christian because I just don't, I think this is all made up, right? Okay, one, thank you for being here. Um, we're, we're honored that you would actually come and join us and listen to the teaching of, of God's word even though it may not be something that you trust in and believe yet. But even to the Christian, who sits in the room and is like, man, wait, I just really struggle with some of these things. I just really struggle with some of these things. I want you to, to pay for, for everyone who's in that boat, the unbeliever, the skeptic, the Christian who's struggling, I just want you to pay attention to the way that the gospel writers are so careful and the Bible is so realistic and true in the way that it presents things. The, the way that this plays out, okay, doesn't really leave us with a lot of options for how to think about it. You may be thinking to yourself, like, Wade, this is a coincidence, right? If it was, there was a thunderstorm outside, Wade, and you walked out there and said, peace, be still, and it stopped... It's not because you have any special authority. It was just a coincidence. This, you're the skeptic. You're thinking, this is how myth and legends are made. This is how superstition comes about. Jesus says these words, and then coincidentally, the wind and everything, the storm stops, and then all of a sudden, people are like, oh, Jesus has this magic power. Okay, the gospel writers don't give you that option. It's not an option. Here's why. All three of the synoptic gospels Matthew chapter 26 or uh, chapter 8 verse 26 says he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. Mark chapter 4 verse 39 he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Luke 8:24 he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a great calm so here's here's why this couldn't be a coincidence okay if you've ever been in a storm you think back to to hurricane katrina okay huge waves are coming right there's there's obviously the moon and the tide and different things like that that can affect waves but at the same time there's a huge storm that is coming and the wind constantly blowing stirs up the water And gets the water going. And Jesus walks out, right, and says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And and I would grant you that it could be a coincidence and superstition if the scripture said that the wind stopped. Because the wind could just stop coincidentally. But water doesn't work that way. If I had water up here, right, in in a large container and I was shaking it and I stopped, what does that water look like? Does it immediately go completely calm? No, it's still raging and moving and it takes time for the water to calm down. And I think Luke's gospel is the most instructive when it says the wind and the raging waves, they ceased and there was a great calm. Immediately defying the laws of physics, the water just dies out. And again, I think the Jesus Storybook Bible is so artistic in the way that it captures this. It says immediately the wind stopped, the water calmed down, Listen to the imagery here. It glittered innocently in the moonlight and lapped quietly against the side of the boat as if nothing had happened. And the little boat bobbed gently up and down. There was a deep stillness and a great quiet all around. Coincidence is not an option. It's not an option. And at this point, the disciples have now had an experience that many of us may have had at some point in our life to one degree or another. Uh, I had a, an experience sort of like this whenever I first went to Mississippi State. I went to a, a large state university, um, and I loved playing basketball. And so my first day on campus, the first thing I did, finished classes, getting ready, go to the rec center and I want, I want to play basketball and there's courts everywhere. It's like, I'm in heaven. This is fantastic. I'm going to play basketball every day. I come in and I immediately start gauging, like, where's the best game? Okay. Cause you have like four courts and there's like a game down there and it's like, oh no, those guys are not very good. Right. Or These guys are a little bit better. These guys are, oh, that's where the good guys are playing. Okay. I want to try to play over. I want to see if I can play on that end. So I go over to that end of the court and I get ready to play. And there's this guy out there running around and I'm kind of you know, first day on campus at a large university. And so this guy's out there getting up and down the floor and he's playing. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I can play with that guy. Like, I think the other guys over here I'm okay with, but he's really tall, he's like thin and tall. But he wasn't just like playing up close to the basket. He was like stepping way out and shooting three-pointers. And then he was on a fast break and he just goes flying through the air and dunks one. And, I, and so at that point, you start to ask the question. You have this little bit of experience like the disciples had here where you're like, who is that guy, Right. All of a sudden, you, you know, when somebody does something like it, you just—it's natural. You ask, "Who is that?" Well, it was this guy. Um, it was a, it was an ESPN top 100 recruit uh, who was coming to Mississippi State. And he, uh, he was really, really good. Six foot seven. Ray Vernon Johnson was his name. Ended up scoring over 1,400 points in his career at Mississippi State. Played professionally from 2011 to 2019. Uh, was one of my favorite players the whole time he was there. But he was in the gym that day. And the point is this when you see somebody doing these things, you naturally ask the question who is that? Because you recognize that that guy is not like me, he's different. Okay? And that's the experience that the disciples have here. And these are Jewish men in the boat, okay? So keep that in mind. These are Jewish men. And so they're probably familiar with Psalm eighty nine nine. Psalm nine nine, speaking of the Lord, says this, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And so these Jewish men recognize where they are and what is going on. And I'm gonna go back to the skeptic and say, this this is another reason why I think that it would be beyond reason for you to say that this was just a coincidence. Because if it was just coincidental and the wind stopped, then the disciples would not have reacted the way that they did, okay? The disciples would not have reacted the way that they did. What does the Bible tell us? Does it say this? And so they they realized once he did that, Psalm 89, nine's on their mind, they realized when he did that that God was in the boat And so they felt much better. Is that what the Bible tells us? No. Mark chapter four, verse 41 is the one of the gospels that's most instructive here. It says, and they were filled with great fear. So Mark's gospel is amazing. It begins and he says that they're terrified of the storm. And then Jesus comes out and calms the storm. And if it had simply been something that could be coincidental and the waves were still going and bobbing, these professional fishermen would not have reacted the way that they did. They would have been fine with it. But when the waves stopped and that boat starts to bob gently in calm water, all of a sudden they realize this man is not like us and they're terrified. It's like a scene in a movie where you're, you know, the the good guy is face to face with a monster and you're just terrified this monster is going to kill him and then out of nowhere a bigger one comes and eats that one and it's like, well, I'm glad that one's gone, but now I actually have a bigger problem. I was afraid of the storm, but now I realize the guy in the boat is more powerful than the storm. What do I do with that? I think back to Ken's message yesterday when he talked about being yoked to Jesus and how wonderful it is and simultaneously terrifying. Terrifying. And so what is the point? The point is not that we realize that Jesus is in the boat with us and he will calm the storms in our lives and everything will just be so much better. No. Matthew sets up his entire gospel to teach us this is the one with authority. Watch it. See him display his authority. He is the one who is in the boat with the disciples. And so what we understand is that what Matthew wants us to take away from this is that Jesus is Lord of all creation, not one rogue molecule in the universe. He's Lord of it all. And so the disciples ask the natural question at this point. They say, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy? And everyone on the face of the earth is eventually confronted with that question and has to answer that question Who is Jesus? And Jesus himself, so the disciples are asking the question in chapter 8, who is this guy? He is different. Everyone who heard him speaking in the Sermon on the Mount said, this guy speaks differently. This guy does things that are different. Who is he? And so in chapter 16, Jesus actually starts to pose the question himself. People aren't asking him anymore, he's asking them. So he goes to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17, and he says... He came to them and asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's a question for everyone in the room. Who do you say that he is? In this case, Simon Peter replies and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What we see here is that after spending time with Jesus for a long time, the guys who were asking the question in chapter eight are now answering the question in chapter 16. They've seen his authority. They've seen the work that he's done. And so they declare that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is where we need to be a little bit instructive here because there's a tendency, especially with modern Western readers, to, to think of Jesus Christ and to have a little bit of confusion, okay? Because that, that, those words, Jesus is, the you are the Christ, Okay, that's a title. It's a title. So it's not, Jesus is not Mr. Christ. This, Christ is not his last name, okay? Hello, Mr. Christ, nice to meet you. No, he is the Christ, which means king. This fits perfectly with, with Matthew's entire gospel. He presents to us Jesus as the Christ, the king. The, and what do kings have? Authority. And here's the reality is we, we can't make Jesus who we want him to be. We take him for who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. Matthew chapter, um, chapter 9 is where we're going to look next. But it's worth just kind of instructing here and saying, like, hey, Jesus, his, his whole life was one of revelation, He's making himself known and God throughout all human history has progressively revealed more and more and more of himself and his plan for the world throughout all of human history. And so when Jesus kind of stamps Peter's understanding of who he is and said, blessed are you, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven, what we realize is that God is revealing who Jesus is to people, that Jesus is made known to people. And so you don't get to make up who Jesus is. You don't get to pick. The the guy who can walk out to the waves and say, peace, be still, and they stop, he gets to define himself. So we take him for who he says he is, not who we want him to be. And so earlier, When I was talking about uh, chapter 8 and kind of the things that follow, I purposely omitted one of the things that Jesus does shortly after um, that declaration is given that he teaches like one with authority. This is what happens in Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's the story of the paralytic, but there's the discourse that takes place in there between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees who are around and they're like Jesus you know says that he's going to forgive sin and they're like who is this guy right what's he doing and then Jesus as a display of his power he asked the question what's easier to hit, to say to someone rise up and walk or to forgive sins and the answer is it's easier to tell somebody to rise up and walk than it is to forgive sins because who can forgive sin God alone but Jesus as a show of authority, says this in chapter, or in chapter nine, verse six. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so to, to prove his authority in this moment now, he says, so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. And so friends, here is the good news. The one who has authority over all creation, The one who the wind and the waves obey is the same one who has authority to forgive sin. And it's a reminder to Christians in the room that waves are not the only thing that Jesus rebuked. He rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith and trust in him as well. So for the the Christian, um, I, I really hope That that seeing what Jesus has done here, that it serves as a means to increase your faith. That when we see Jesus for who he really is, that our trust in him would deepen. And for those who have not followed Jesus, I'm here today to tell you that Jesus did not just talk the talk. Saying that he's God and that he's the king of all creation. He proved it. It was demonstrated And so the question is Will you pledge your allegiance to King Jesus? Submit to him, get baptized, follow him your whole life. Because he is the one and the only one who can take you safely to heaven's shore, to get you home safely. And I think of the children of Israel passing through the waters of the Red Sea, and then before they go in the promised land, they actually cross through the Jordan River as well, with the Jordan now in heaps on both sides as they move into the land that God has promised to give them. And they pass through the middle of the chaos and the fear and the unknown that was water in the ancient times. And what does God tell them about the times through which they're going to pass through water? I can The end of the Pilgrim's Progress is beautiful. If you know the book, read it. But Christian is getting ready to cross into the celestial city and he's gotta go through a river. When John Bunyan wrote it, I was like, this is brilliant. What does he have to do? He's gotta pass through the water to get there. And he's scared and he's trembling and he thinks he's not gonna make it. And all of a sudden, he just cries out. A friend cries out to him from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses one and two. Listen, But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. If we go to Jesus, even as the di- disciples did in this story, in desperation, in the midst of chaos, even with small and fearful faith, and cry out, Lord, save me, he will, and he'll bring you safely to heaven's shore. Ken touched on this yesterday, showed a picture, what, what, is, what is the shore of heaven like? The the imagery in the book of Revelation is beautiful. And if you understand the water and the chaos and the fear for ancient people, to read in Revelation chapter four, verse six, that Jesus is seated on the throne and around the throne, the sea is glass. Perfectly still. No chaos. No fear. Perfect peace. In the presence of the Christ, the king, the son of the living God, the lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality. Even as Jesus says at the end of the book of Matthew that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And so God, we just ask that you would would help us to see Jesus for who he is. Father, we thank you for the writers of scripture the work that they did to help us see and understand. We thank you for your spirit who inspired them and aided them in the writing of scripture. And so Father, we ask for your same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of these words, that that same spirit would continue to come and work in our hearts and minds to help us understand them, that we would see and know and love the Christ, the King. We pray these things in his name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit benttreechurch.com.